2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Congressman Ro Khanna, who uh, represents the state of California, or at least the 17th District, the Silicon Valley area, and the U.S. House of Representatives. He is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You can tweet him at Rep Ro Khanna, and R-O-K-H-A-N-N-A. Kana.house.gov is his website. And he's gonna be with us for the whole hour taking your calls. We're doing a national town hall meeting here. And Congressman kana welcome back to the program. I'm wondering what is on your mind right now? What's at the top of your list of things that you think that people need to know about?
3: Well, we are pushing for the next phase of the stimulus. And the critical part of that has to be, in my view, a check to every American. Tim Ryan and I, Bernie Sanders, have been pushing for $2,000 a month. This is something we need to be, for people to make rent, for people to afford to put food on the table. We're pushing for workers' bill of rights. uh, All of these essential workers, they need safety. They need to be paid for what they're doing to keep our society open. And we're pushing for relief to the states and localities. We're going to see dramatic cuts
2: otherwise. I was talking with a friend of mine in Australia last week, and he said that they've got a program there where any employer can claim up to $3,000 per month for every employee, but 100% of that money has to pass through the employer to the employee. It includes part-time and even occasional-time workers. You can't exceed what their salary would have been or their income would have been, but up to that amount it can be supplemental or not but 100% of it has to go through over at wolfstreet.com they point out the fed has printed 2.26 trillion and of course you guys have appropriated more than that but just looking at that this is since march 11th to basically support the stock market and the wall street banks and they note that if the fed had spread that 2.26 trillion equally over the 130 million households in the united states each household would have received $17,380, which makes it around $34,000 per household if you add the $2 trillion that came out of Congress. Why is so much of this money ending up in the hands of people who are in tight with the Trump administration and whatnot? I mean, Judd Legum's newsletter, Popular.info, the headline, Multi-Millionaire Trump Donor is Top Recipient of Funds Intended for Struggling Small Businesses.
3: Well, look, I wish, Tom, I could have my staff, I think, just copy and paste exactly your transcript there, because we've been pushing for $2,000 a month for families, and that would be, for a year, probably about the cost of all of the other bailouts that we've done. And the reality is, when you see the stock market, frankly, doing as well as it is, only 16% off its uh, high, and yet people struggling to get rent paid, struggling to put food on the table, you know that the priorities of allocation have been wrong. We should have just given people the money they needed. And so I think that this has shown yet again that we haven't had the correct principles like we didn't in 2008. We had a bailout that was too geared towards Wall Street. I think it led to some of the populist backlash. And i fear that
2: you're gonna see the same thing and we still aren't helping the people who need it most. Yeah, it's really, really unfortunate. Well, let's pick up phone calls, okay? Yes. Okay, Catherine, in Kearney, Nebraska, you are on the air with Congressman Khanna.
4: Yeah, I'm calling about my concern about the electoral college and the way it's run in most of the states. I'm from Nebraska and Nebraska does not run their electoral college like 48 of the other states. Nebraska and Maine, they split their votes in the electoral college according to how the actual people in the state vote, like when Obama in the and Trump That's correct. Well, the whole election, like when McCain and Obama, we have five electoral votes. And when McCain and Obama ran, 20% of the population of Nebraska voted for Obama. And so he got one of our votes and McCain got the other four. And I know that Maine is the only other state that splits their vote according to the actual votes. And my concern is, is that the winner take all that seems to be in all of the other states why do they do it that way? Because, like, you could have, if this is a close election, you could have 51 percent voting for Trump, and you get 49 voting for Biden, and then the winner take all the, all the votes go for Trump. And when you're dealing with large states like California and Texas, that's a lot of votes that are just thrown away. And I think that's why people think, well, my vote doesn't count.
3: And well, You raise some very good points. And I think this is the challenge with the Electoral College system where you really could have a situation of Trump losing by five, six, seven million popular votes and still potentially eking out a a win in the Electoral College. I mean, even Republicans, even Trump's supporters concede that he has virtually no chance of winning the popular vote. I mean, I think even Brad Pascale, his campaign manager, will tell you that their whole strategy is to eke out Uh, this electoral college win and have this surreal possibility that someone is going to be possibly a president for a second term down five, six, seven million popular votes. And that's why we need to to move towards a a compact. I think the, the voluntary compact of states saying that they will pledge their electoral delegates to the popular vote winner. I think that's the best shot we have of change in
2: this country. Yeah, and that's over at nationalpopularvote.com is the website for that. David in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hi, Congressman.
5: I kind of want to echo what Tom was talking about earlier, but I think the uh, subsidies are not negotiated harder. I think the Democrats have a chance to really play hardball with the Republicans on this, and voters will understand. Voters want something. Voters want to protect the post office, voters want farm workers protected. Voters want rural hospitals protected. Voters want minimum wage higher. Voters want a Green New Deal. All these things could be negotiated. I think these are the things that should be coming up constantly in these um, subsidies.
3: David, I agree with you. Other countries, Canada and Britain, for far less cost, managed to have a simple thing of just saying, okay, we're going to pay workers to stay employed at 80% or, or 75%. Even that, in my view, would have been better than the unrestricted loans that we've been giving. And by the way, it wasn't just the $500 billion to Mnuchin or the Fed providing liquidity for the banks. It was also the small business loans. I mean, in my district, you've seen that the vast majority of those loans have gone to people who were connected to the banks. Uh, they've gone to people with 200 300 Size businesses, employees of 200 or 300, even though most of the jobs are created by businesses that are less than 20. And so I think it's a fair criticism of Congress, of, in which I serve. I, I can just say the progressives have been pushing for a different approach, and we're going to continue to push for a different approach in this next stimulus.
2: Good luck. I really hope that happens. I, I, I really do. And this, this could be, you know, I, I think this could be political dynamite. So for our Tom Harbin Insider video that's available over at TomHartman.com, it's pretty mind-boggling, actually. Candidate Trump, back in 2016, said, I'm not going to cut Social Security like every other Republican, and I'm not going to cut Medicare or Medicaid. Every other Republican is going to cut, but I won't. That's what he said. Well, what did his budget actually propose? His budget actually proposed, this is last year's budget, Congress didn't pass it, thank God, but this is what his budget proposed, $1.9 trillion in cuts to Medicare and Medicaid, and $26 billion in cuts to Social Security. And now he is block-granting Medicaid to the states, which is already cutting back on Medicaid programs in the red states. You can check it all out over at TomHartman.com. Robin in Los Angeles, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Okay, I have a question that seems to be ignored and I don't hear much about. What are we, you know, we are talking a lot about the corruption of the executive branch and aid going to friends of Trump. And I'm going, what, what, what? Did the framers of the Constitution not foresee a reckless and corrupt executive branch? Where are the real-time checks and balances on the executive branch power? The 25th Amendment doesn't work because it's controlled by the vice president of the executive branch. Impeachment and voting are after-the-fact solutions. So how is this president making so many reckless, real-time, unilateral decisions like a king that are being carried out? I'm so confused about this. And going back to the bipartisan condemned withdrawal of the troops in Syrian border, nobody wanted that, but he was just able to do it, to the delayed action about, uh, regarding the pandemic warnings, which Congress was also aware of. So why is everybody sitting there letting one man rule our country in a way that I do not believe our country is supposed to work? Um, so that's my question. I, I did ask my representative uh, Schiff at another town hall, and he said that the Congress has the power of the purse, but that clearly isn't enough to stop this real time disaster, to, to curtail these dangerous decisions from being enacted or ignored, like the ignoring of the pandemic warnings. It's, it's not just one man's. We
2: got it, Robin. Let Congressman Connor respond.
3: Raman, I share your frustration. I mean, first, I'd say that our founders did anticipate the situation. I mean, they were read widely read at Plato's Republic of the disintegration of democracy. And actually, Madison has a, a paragraph in one of the Federalist Papers talking about the fact that they have to design a system knowing that enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. I think there are two things that they probably did not calculate. One is their assumption was that people's ambition in Congress in the institution in which they serve would make sure that they were keeping a check on the executive branch. They didn't anticipate the rise of party loyalty and that people's ambition to their party would actually trump their ambition of their loyalty to their own institutions. And so one of the problems here is that you literally have Mitch McConnell and Republicans having little interest in standing up for the institution of the Senate or Congress and having totally abdicated responsibility. The second thing is, which which Lincoln is so thoughtful on, and he says that, look, yeah, laws matter, but ultimately you need a political culture. And so much of our democracy is dependent on norms and cultural standards and it's not just about legal standards and i think that's what trump has shown us that no matter how much oversight you have we had in the past presidents who were shaped by basic norms that you listen to experts that you listen to science and this president has been totally oblivious to all of that now, this is not to duck of your point we're doing everything we can but it's highlighting problems in our democracy
2: Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls for the hour, our national town hall meeting here on the Tom Hartman program. We'll be back with more of your calls for him in just a moment. You can find his website at Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A You can tweet him at Rep Ro Khanna, R-O Khanna. And we'll be right back. Coming up on the science revolution, as the Georgia governor rolled out a new death panel coronavirus plan. Dr. Andrew Glickson is here on the coronavirus versus climate extinction. While we're dealing with COVID-19, we're also hurtling toward extinction. Dr. Justin Frank drops by saying, Trump could see dead bodies from coronavirus and just step over them. What? Also, Greg Palast explains the secret history of the Deepwater Horizon, BP's second blowout. It's the 10 year anniversary for Deepwater Horizon's debacle. Find the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Welcome back. Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls for the hour, our national town hall meeting. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Kim in Polson, Montana, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna.
6: Well, hello there. It's an honor to speak to you, Tom. You're like the only faith I have out there, along with Randy Rose and a few other good people that are out there (laughs) telling the truth. I live in a very conservative and beautiful community, and we're trying to work with the people here locally. We find that the change has to come from us. We cannot wait for the federal government to do anything for us. I originally immigrated from Germany, from a social democracy that worked very well. Thank you very much. And people here do not understand what a social democracy is because of how they're being taught about it in school. So my question is this: We have a corrupt government. Period. There are some good people in there, like Representative Ro Khanna, But what do we do to completely start over? This system is broke, and it's insane to continue to try to fix it. It's not working.
3: Kim, I share your frustration. Let me suggest a few concrete reforms. One is I think we need to have democracy dollars, meaning every voter becomes a donor uh, so that everyone can run a campaign like Bernie Sanders, where you're being fueled by citizen contributions. If you give everyone $100, that frankly would be constitutional, even under this court, because this court says that you can't restrict private spending, but you can dwarf private spending by giving, making every voter a donor. And Russ Feingold and I and Bruce Ackerman have put forward a proposal. Second, we need to do far more in standing up for the right to vote. I mean, the disenfranchisement has been extraordinarily and one of the biggest challenges of our time. It's how people are retaining power and suppressing the popular will. We saw this a blatant example of it in Wisconsin, and the final thing I would say is that we need to understand the importance of building movements. That's the only thing that really changes politics. And we've got to continue to support movements being built on various issues.
2: Steve in St. Genevieve, Missouri, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yeah, Tom. Hello, Congressman. I just heard on
3: the news that we're in a double-dip depression now. So I was looking up the last major depression. That was also classified as a double-dip depression. The New Deal didn't actually get us out of the Depression. It was actually a world war. Now, if the Green New Deal steps in, is that going to really get us out of this double-dip Depression only, or are we going to have to do something even greater in order to get us up out of this hole? Thank you. Well, that's a great point. The Center of the Congressional Budget Office came up with projections, and I don't know how valid they are, but they said, look, we're going to have massive economic drop in Q2. And by Q4, you're going to start to see economic growth and maybe the stock market stabilizing. But here was the key finding. They said unemployment, even for all of next year, was still going to be higher than double digits. And the challenge for us is, what are we doing, as Tom pointed out, for ordinary people. How are we going to get people jobs? How are we going to make sure that they have the money they need for their necessities? I am less concerned with the economy picking up again for those who are well off. What I'm more concerned about is the impact this is going to have on the 50% of the country that was living paycheck to paycheck and on people getting back to work. And we're unless we change our priorities of federal spending, we're going to have that kind of Depression or severe recession for that population for a long time.
2: Julie in Pattonsburg, Missouri, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Oh, thank you very much. I've been trying to get all of the problem for a couple of weeks and
3: I've always had poor timing. First of all, I'd like to make a couple of little quick uh, statements to you.
2: I'm not Julie, we anybody. just have a minute and a half to the break. Can you please ask Congressman Connor a question? All right, well, let me throw this in here. Smithfield Farms Packing is owned by the Chinese.
3: My question is, we're not hearing any follow-up about the children that have been incarcerated down along the border. Do we have any concrete information on how they're surviving this uh, epidemic of viral infections? How many more are
5: there or less are there? Have any of them found their way to their parents?
3: it's so yeah, a very thoughtful question. question. With the the, the oversight uh, committee, we have asked time and again. They say that they've all been reunited. I I don't believe that, and we're continuing to push the administration at every step. But I do think we should make an inquiry about the conditions, not just of the children, but the migrant workers at the border right now and what we're doing, making sure that they're not being susceptible to the pandemic. The Progressive Caucus has been writing letters, but we need to make it part of our next stimulus to require basic sanitation and basic medical care for people who are down there.
2: So the administration, let me get this straight, the administration is saying that there are no more children in cages?
3: that's what they say they say that they're what about the thousands of kids they
2: lost track of
3: well they claim i mean i'm not I, i don't buy it they claim that they've all been reunited to the extent that they've been able to keep track but you know i've said to people we track amazon packages better in this country than they track those kids and i think there are a lot of them who just got lost who they don't have an ability to track and they don't have the interest in tracking and so they're coming back and saying they've done what they can and they've reunited the people they can, but I think thousands of people fell through the cracks.
2: Yeah, what a mess. It's a National Town Hall meeting with Congressman Roe Connor right after this. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations on multiple systems on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep.
4: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu
8: slash podcast. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows.
2: We're reading today in the Tom Hartman Book Club from my old friend Armin Lehman's book, The Late Armin Lehman. The book is titled In Hitler's Bunker, A Boy Soldier's Eyewitness Account. Of the Fuhrer's last days. My friend Armin was the 16-year-old who gave the bad news to Hitler, and then he watched as Hitler walked into the room and committed suicide. It opens with an introduction from Arthur Axman, the leader of the Hitler Youth, in April of 45. There's only victory or annihilation. No, no bounds in your hatred of the enemy. It is your duty to watch when others tire, to stand when others weaken. Your greatest honor is your unshakable fidelity to Adolf Hitler. It was with words such as these that the Third Reich's Hitler Youth Leader, Arthur Axman, exhorted 10-year-old boys and girls being sworn into the Hitler Youth in Berlin on the eve of Adolf Hitler's last birthday. The children were being inducted into the junior echelons of the movement, the Jungvolk, the young folk, and the Jungmadel, the young maidens. I was looking on, then, age 16, a member of the Hitler Youth Volkssturm, literally People's Storm, the Volksturm was the home defense force of old men and young boys hastily assembled in the dying days of the war. Every able-bodied male between the ages of 16 and 55 was ordered to put on whatever uniform he could find, anything from postman's uniforms to firefighter's uniforms, and fight for the fatherland. The Russians called us totals because we were the result of total war. The Wehrmacht called us stew because we were a mixture of old meat and green vegetables. However, I had recently distinguished myself in battle and had even been awarded the Iron Cross Second Class. The Hitler Youth Leader, Arthur Axmann, at 32, was the youngest of the senior Nazis around Hitler, but his influence within Hitler's inner circle was growing daily toward the end of the war as he pledged that the Hitler Youth Movement would fight to the death for the Fuhrer and the Fatherland. In Hitler's last days, Axmann was one of only a handful of Nazis, including Hitler's private secretary Martin Bormann and the cynical propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels who enjoyed the Fuhrer's absolute trust and confidence. Axmann had personally selected me to present to Hitler on the occasion of his 56th birthday at a ceremony in the Reich Chancellery in Berlin, partly because of my recent distinction in fighting the Russians, but partly, I suspect, because my role in the Hitler Youth Unit was as a courier, a melder. Hitler had won his Iron Cross as a courier in the First World War. I think that Axmann saw that as a lucky sign of some sort. At that moment, our Fuhrer could do with every bit of luck he could get. As I watched Axman, I did not realize it, but victory for the Allies was no longer in doubt. Germany was being overrun from every direction. City after city was being turned into ash under a ferocious Allied bombing campaign, unprecedented in its intensity. I, along with several hundred other teenage soldiers of the Hitler Youth Volkssturm, was among the last who would serve Hitler's regime in Berlin, in the much-vaulted Citadel of the Fuhrer's last redoubt in the dying days of the war. I didn't know it at the time, but I would soon be serving as a courier in his bunker beneath the chancellery. It was an experience that would bring me into contact with some of the most notorious Nazis of the time, as well as some of the most decent soldiers and civilians struggling to cope with the death wish Hitler had imposed upon all Germans. Facing total defeat, the Fuhrer was now willing to sacrifice everything and everybody, including even the youngest and most innocent of German lives. It wasn't just males either. The Bund Deutscher Model, the German Girls Legion, or BDM, was the female section of the Hitler youth. They, too, sacrificed their lives for the Fuhrer. I did not realize at the time that Germany faced total defeat. I still believed in the myth of our, quote, miracle weapons that was widely circulated before the end of the war. I had no comprehension of the sheer evil that was at the heart of the Nazi regime. Yet I was prepared to lay down my life for Hitler in defense of the fatherland and the noble ideals of the National Socialist Movement. I was elated at the prospect of greeting Hitler the following morning on his 56th and last birthday. To comprehend why anybody can have been so thoroughly taken in by such a deception, one must understand a little about my background. I was four years old when Adolf Hitler became Reich Chancellor of a coalition cabinet in Germany. It was 30 January 1933. Later, that historic date became known as Die Machtgefremen, the Seizure of Might, Absolute power, as Hitler has taught us, often brings about primal chaos. But in Hitler's case, it went beyond that. His absolute control over the minds of countless individuals created a living hell that destroyed the lives of millions of people in a human catastrophe too enormous to comprehend. In Hitler's bunker, We're doing a National Town Hall meeting here with Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls for the hour. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents Silicon Valley and the U.S. House of Representatives from California. And Barbara in Fayetteville, Arkansas, you are on the air with Congressman Khanna.
7: First of all, thank you both for your voices and your educational expression. I'm going to try to summarize it. So, my entire life, I'm a Southerner, and I worked really hard to keep myself out of debt, but obviously debt doesn't matter to the government, but personally, yes. So my question to you is, I love the idea of the $2,000 for each person because that money will turn around and go right back in to the economy. However, the stock people, and, the, and people still believe in the stock market, represents us. They're buying stock buyouts and doing whatever else. Now, the thing that's happened this week, the Federal Reserve, who keeps just printing, 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 and evidently they're lending to 13 of the other central banks throughout the world. So I just don't understand why, as a country, we can't take care of the people that need the money the most, which are the citizens and not the oligarchs billionaires.
3: Well, I completely agree with you. And I think you're right to point out that the $2,000 a month is not just going to help ordinary people, but that money is going to be spent on groceries, on rent, on essential supplies. It's going to go right back into the economy and it's going to actually create jobs. Whereas the money that's in the investor class, I mean, that could be sitting anywhere in the world and it isn't being spent and that's why it's been the basic principle of economics that you want to get the money out to people who are going to spend it we have a consumer spending issue post-covid and so tim ryan and i even the new democrats were all pushing that the monthly checks need to be part of this next stimulus
2: tim in Ashboro, north carolina you're on the air with congressman Connor. all
5: right uh thank you tom and congressman Connor it's a uh, Honored to be able to speak to you today, and I want to say something real quickly uh, correct. Uh, the post office is mandated to pay $5.5 billion a year, $5.5 and, and it's still in place. It's a law. Uh, the other thing is, um, congressman from Pennsylvania wrote a letter to Mnuchin, to McConnell, and McCarthy uh, to support the post office in this next stimulus. And my question to you is, sir, two, do you know about the letter? And two, would you be in support of a public postal service? Because I worked there for 40 years, and it's in danger of closing down.
3: Well, sir, thank you, first of all, for your work. I am in favor of a public postal service for the simple reason that no one has shown me how you could send a letter across the country and uh, do it for 50 cents. I mean, FedEx can't do that. EPS can't do that. And even Trump, when you listen to him, says, well, I want the postal service to be charging higher Right. Well, the the, the whole idea of the Postal Service is that anyone should be able to mail things and letter carriers are the glue in uh, communities. They are more than actually just delivering the mail. They're often counselors. They know what the people's problems are in a society. We need that kind of uh, social support at a time where life is more atomized. So this is not a money issue. It would cost $10 billion. As you've seen, we've given out trillions this is a values issue, and Democrats need to stand up for the
2: Postal Service like we do for public education. Javon Hello. in Los Angeles. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna.
9: Professor, good morning, and Congressman, it's good to be on the phone with you guys. Um, I'm going to try to make this quick. So um, originally, Tom Harmon, what you don't know about me, is that I'm one of the campaign managers for Barack Obama in the Virginia Beach area. So, Congressman... Cool. What are we? Yeah, exactly. What are we doing? What are we doing to energize our base? Because I hope you know, Congressman, that the most progressive candidate in the race is President Donald Trump. So I don't see anybody energized right now. I see the Senator Bernie Sanders has dropped out. which also leads us to drop off as well. So as a former manager for Barack Obama, what are we doing, Congressman, to energize this base? Because I don't see anything happening besides conceding to
3: the progressive nature of Donald Trump. Well, Javon, I uh, appreciate you raising this. As you know, I was the co-chair for Bernie Sanders' campaign. Let me say what will not energize his base, the efforts uh, right now in New York with Andrew Cuomo trying to cancel the presidential election. And and Bernie Sanders just today has been in court trying to make sure that the election goes forward so that they don't strip him of his delegates. If he doesn't get 25% of delegates, we won't be able to be represented on those committee platforms. And then in California, even though he won that state, they have not made a commitment, the governor or party chair, that he would get to keep his delegates. I think that would be really hurtful to our ability to mobilize the base if Bernie Sanders isn't allowed to keep the delegates that he's earned and if he isn't allowed to stay on the ballot in these other states. What we do need to do better in energizing young people, I agree with you that it's going to be necessary and a challenge, and we need to be speaking to their real needs, ending student loan debt and making sure that they have basic health care without going bankrupt, making sure that we're trying to get a Green New Deal. Young people are going to be inspired not by personality, but by policy. And that is what some of us will continue to push for, for the Democratic
2: Party. Jack in Cortez, Colorado, you're on the air with Congressman Connor.
3: Hi, I've got a couple questions. One is, it seems like well, I'm 69 years old and a veteran, and it seems like the um, $1,200 stimulus checks. For senior citizens, I'm on just Social Security, has just been kind of just postponed and postponed again. Are we gonna see another stimulus package that's gonna include people that are retired, like me, living on a very low income? And I'll take my answer off the air. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your service to our country. I agree with you. I mean, one $1,200 check is not enough, and some people still haven't gotten it. We need to have monthly checks while this crisis is going on. It's amazing to me how obvious that is. Uh, We've seen just on this show so many calls are saying, let's get a monthly check. The polls overwhelmingly show that people want that, Republicans, Democrats, independents. This crisis was not caused by any person in this country, with the exception of mismanagement by some of the government. And so people should not have to suffer for it. And I am doing everything in my power to push for getting monthly checks out while this crisis is, is going Tim Ryan and I have a proposal of $2,000 a month.
2: Philip in Island Pond, Vermont. You're on the air with Congressman McConnell. Yeah, um, I'm glad to hear all the good things. But
5: my concern is this, and I haven't heard this question asked at all by anyone out there, of any of the Republicans or the Democrats. Why is this president so powerful, and why is he feared by both the Democrats and Republicans? This man does all these wrongful things— Yet no one takes him on for this or challenges him on us. You know, talk is cheap, but money buys the whiskey. I don't understand if he's done these things and they're not legal. How do they keep going on? I mean, the guy hasn't even released his tax returns, and that's historic in itself. Why is this president so feared? Everybody talks around the president. They're afraid that he's going to do something to them. I haven't heard the Progressive Network's great. I love free speech TV, but my concern is no one on either party has really
3: taken this man on. That's it. What's
5: going on?
2: Got it.
3: I appreciate and understand your frustration. I'll say that, you know, the Democrats, we did impeach him, and we tried to remove him from office. It's about the highest thing you can do. The fear is among Republicans, and that's because he's polling it. 90 some percent approval with Republican voters. And he's more popular with the Republican base than most of the Congress people and senators. And so they fear that one tweet from him will destroy their careers, will cost them their seats. I don't think Democrats fear him. I certainly don't think Nancy Pelosi or Adam Schiff or others fear him. They've been willing to stand up to him very clearly. But ultimately, in a democracy Given that we only control one branch of government, the House of Representatives, there's only so much you can do when an entire party, the Republican Party, uh, controls the Senate and has turned a blind eye to what Trump has been doing.
2: Congressman, we just have 45 seconds to the break. Is it your sense, based on what you're hearing from your colleagues, that uh, Trump is slipping, that the Republicans are slipping as badly as it looks like they are?
3: I have heard greater concerns about his reelection. His numbers have been poor in some of the battleground states. I think people were horrified by his comments about injecting Lysol, and, and you saw that he's discontinued his press conferences, at least for the time. Publicans are they back lines. on? Uh, are they back on? I mean, I guess you can't keep on, up with him, but I think he's going to be more restrained in what he says. At least that's what the people have been saying, and, and people in battleground seats think that he's been doing them more harm than
2: good. Anyway, Congressman Ro Khanna, a national town hall meeting here on the You're Tom Hartman program. To Back Tom with your Hartman. calls in just a minute. Visit
5: TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
2: You can find Congressman Khanna's website at Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot You can tweet him at rep, Ro, R-O, Khanna. Did you know that Ronald Reagan committed treason to become president in 1980 and George Herbert Walker Bush was in on it and he avoided being prosecuted for this in 1992 with a little help from Bill Barr? It's on page 116 of my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Susan, in North Hollywood, California, you're on the air with Congressman Connop.
6: Yes, thank you, and utmost respect and appreciation to both of you. Congressman, why can't California have its own bank like North Dakota, and we can have all that capital for our state and take it power away from some of those big banks? Susan,
3: I'm for states setting up banks to invest in common projects. Of course, it's much harder to do as a state where you have to balance a budget and you can't have deficit spending. And so I think that we really need the federal government to do big projects on things like the Green New Deal or, or Medicare for all. But I'm supportive of
2: states doing what they can within their budgets for banks. Alice in Los Angeles, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna.
7: Good morning, gentlemen. The big topic of a conversation around me is amongst the parents and children aged 17 through 23, and we all want to know why none of those kids, students or otherwise, have received either the 1200 or the 500 deductible under their parents, and what is giving with this CARE proposal that's coming out of colleges
3: as i share your concerns i mean kids have not been adequately covered They're, they didn't get the stimulus check tim ryan and i've been pushing again uh, that they should be getting the stimulus check uh many of them have student loans uh, elizabeth warren and i many progressives push that their student loans should be forgiven that hasn't happened uh, many have rents coming uh, up and we've been pushing for rental assistance so I share your concern that they are hit. They're some of the most economically vulnerable and, and that we haven't done enough. And I can assure you it's a priority for the, is the next stimulus.
2: Terry in Eugene, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Thank you so much for taking my phone call.
10: I just have a couple of really quick questions. It seems to me the Electoral College is the problem. And I'm curious is, is there any legislation coming through or are they proposed to get rid of it? My second question Why were his kids allowed to work in the White House? Who was in charge of, like, maybe getting rid of them out of the White House? Or
3: why were they even let in there to do that? How did you get away with that? Those are my questions. Thank you. Terry, I appreciate both questions. I would say on the Electoral College, as I said earlier, the best chance of getting that through is the National Popular Vote Initiative. You should go to that website. It allows states voluntarily to say, whoever wins the popular vote, we're going to pledge our electoral Votes to them, and then we can get to 270. And if 270, if states do that, enough states that that get to 270, you will change the system without needing a constitutional amendment, which is going to be very very tough given the political climate. Uh, the second thing I'd say is, you know, we had the Bobby Kennedy Law basically, which said a president couldn't appoint his own relative or her own relative to the cabinet, but that never covered white house advisors and you know presidents uh, the thinking was that presidents are going to rely on them for advice. better to have them in the system my concern is the lack of transparency uh, and the lack of disclosures i don't have a problem with him relying on family for advice but the way they've done it and the uh, extent of the their portfolio is what concerns me
2: We have a new video over at TomHartman.com, and it's, it's an interesting one. The, the phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, has a really interesting history. And the exploitation of that phrase and that history by right-wingers in 20th century America, or late 20th century America, now 21st century America, also has a fascinating and rather grim history just the general absurdity of the idea that somebody can lift themselves by reaching down and pulling on a strap on their boots. But it's used as justification by right-wingers, particularly over the last 40 years since the Reagan revolution, to say, oh, you know, poor people, it's all, their poverty is their own fault. Check it out. It's over at TomHartman.com. <laughs> Welcome back, Congressman Ro Connor taking your calls for the hour. And uh, Derek in New Orleans, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna.
4: Good afternoon, how you doing?
3: I'm, I'm from we Orleans, at. I'm saying, uh, I, I wonder what they're gonna do about people on disability. Uh, with disability, Derek? Yes. I mean, I, I think I think that's a very important uh, point. Uh, I and mean, more broadly, I have pushed that we need to reform SSDI and SSI you know, the uh, income for that is not sufficient. We put too many restrictions on the amount people can save, and we need to increase that. Uh, but certainly at a time of COVID where those who are disabled are often the most vulnerable, uh, we need to make sure that they're getting the aid. And I think this is where a $2,000 check a month, which is universal, uh, would work
2: and, and help those with disabilities as well. Charles in St. Peter's, Missouri. You're on the air with Congressman Kana.
9: How you doing, Congressman? Long-time uh, listener, first-time caller. I had a question for you about child support and the stimulus package. Why is it that if you owe arrears, that they take all of the money from you? Myself, I owe a, a current child support and arrears, and I'm current on both of them for the last ten years. Now, again, there's another stimulus package that's come out, but there's no relief for us. We're out of work. We can't pay our child support. So not only are we getting hit by that, they're taking all of the stimulus money from us. We're used to not getting income tax, but we don't get any relief from the stimulus package at all. And the little funds that they release releasing, the 1200 to 2000 to 500 child care credit, Uh, we don't need
3: any part of that either. So what do we do? Charles, I hear you. I mean, I obviously support the idea of uh, money going for child support, and I think that that's absolutely critical. But I think what this suggests is that we need more stimulus, and it should be more regular, and that would make sure that you had some money and and not all of it was going to child support. When you just get one $1,200 check, I guess a lot of it goes to, to child support, but that's why we need a more generous stimulus package.
2: Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. Bill, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yeah. Hi, Congressman. I understand
5: that you represent Silicon Valley. And one of the best kept secrets
3: I know you've been talking about is AI and quantum computing. And there's all these companies now that are offering free cloud work for the coronavirus. It's known that... Google claimed quantum computing supremacy in November. I believe they did a problem in 10 minutes that would take the fastest supercomputer 10,000 years to do. So solving the coronavirus,
5: which is nothing more than modeling and figuring in numbers, should be an easy one. And there should be some coordination between all the uh, research facilities to work just on the coronavirus, I believe and there's still a big race,
3: and it's a big security issue, as you know. Uh, I was wondering what you thought about that. Well, Bill, I definitely think AI, which uh, is capable of detecting patterns and quantum computing, which is able to uh, to solve large problems quickly uh, with computational uh, ability, can can help us solve these issues. But one of the things is that uh, it can't just be all in the private sector. I mean, we needed to have much more public investment in public health and science. I mean, there were vaccines that were being developed in 2016 for the coronavirus, not for COVID-19 specifically, but the coronavirus, and they didn't go forward because there wasn't a market for it. And I think the lesson here is that, yes, we need private investment, but we also need public investment for the types of public health issues that the country is going to face.
2: And that's where we've really not done enough as a nation. Charles in Vancouver, Washington. Charles, we have less than a minute to the break. A real quick question, please. Yeah, Tom, Congressman, great to talk to you for a moment. We need mail-in balloting this fall. I want to know is it within
5: Congress' purview to direct the states to mandate states conduct balloting by mail this fall?
3: Yes, great. Charles, I think it is. I mean, I think it's in our purview to uh, ensure that. Uh, uh, the right to vote uh, under the 15th amendment means something and under the 14th amendment uh, means something of quality of the, of the right to vote we need to insist on that we need to fund it we need to fund states to do it i'm very concerned that what they republicans tried to do in wisconsin it didn't work there but what they tried to do in disenfranchising people that 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 is the strategy for november i mean let's be very clear if everyone in this country were to vote we would win and that's they understand that
2: Absolutely, they do. I'll I'll forward to you the uh, email I got from FreedomWorks this morning about this. They are really cranking stuff up. Congressman Connor, thanks so much for being with us today.
3: Thank you, Tom. Always enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, great talking with you. I'm always, always very pleased to have you on here. We'll be back. Uh, We're going to talk about vote by mail. In fact, with the Jefferson Smith. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. It really is a deep history. It's brilliant. This is from the introduction. As 1956 drew to a close, Colgate Whitehead Darden Jr., the president of the University of Virginia, feared for the future of his beloved state. The previous year, the U.S. Supreme Court had issued its second Brown v. Board of Education ruling, calling for the dismantling of segregation in public schools with, quote, all deliberate speed. In Virginia, outraged state officials responded with legislation to force the closure of any school that planned to comply. Some extremists called for ending public education entirely. Darden, who earlier in his career had been the governor, could barely stand to contemplate the damage such a rash move would inflict. Even the name of this plan, Massive Resistance, made his gentlemanly Virginia sound like Mississippi. On his desk was a proposal written by a man who had recently been appointed chair of the economics department at the University of Virginia. 37-year-old James McGill Buchanan likes to call himself a Tennessee country boy, but Darden knew better. No less a figure than Milton Friedman, had it extolled Buchanan's potential. As Darden reviewed the document, he might have wondered if the newly hired economist had read his mind. For without mentioning the crisis at hand, Buchanan's proposal put in writing what Darden was thinking. Virginia needed to find a better way to deal with the incursion on states' rights represented by Brown versus Board of Education. To most Americans living in the North, Brown was a ruling to end segregated schools, nothing more, nothing less, and Virginia's response was about race. But to men like Darden and Buchanan, two well-educated sons of the South who were dedicated to its model of political economy, Brown voted a sea change on much more. At a minimum, federal courts could no longer be counted on to defer reflexively to states' rights arguments. More concerning was the likelihood that the high court would be more willing to intervene when presented with compelling evidence that a state action was in violation of the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection under the law. States' rights, in effect, were yielding in preeminence to individual rights. It was not difficult for either Darden or Buchanan to imagine how a court might now rule, presented with the evidence of the state of Virginia's archaic labor relations, its measures to suppress voting, or its efforts to buttress the power of reactionary rural whites by underrepresenting the moderate voters of the cities and suburbs of northern Virginia. Federal meddling could rise to levels once unimaginable. James McGill Buchanan was not a member of the Virginia elite, nor is there any explicit evidence to suggest that for a white southerner of his day, he was uniquely racist or insensitive to the concept of equal treatment. And yet somehow, all he saw in the Brown decision was coercion. And not just in the abstract, but the court ruling represented to him was personal. Northern liberals, the very people who looked down on Southern whites like him, he was sure, were now going to tell his people how to run their society. And to add insult to injury, he and people like him with property were now no doubt going to be taxed more to pay for all the improvements that were now deemed necessary and proper for the state to make. What about his rights? Where did the federal government get the authority to engineer society to its liking and then send him the bill? Who represented their interests in all this? I can fight this, he concluded. I want to fight this. Find the resources, he proposed to Darden, for me to create a new center on the campus of the University of Virginia, and I will use this center to create a new school of political economy and social philosophy. It would be an academic center, rigorously so, but one with a quiet political agenda. To defeat the perverted form of liberalism that sought to destroy their way of life, a social order, as he described it, built on individual liberty, a term with its own coded meaning, but one the Darden surely understood. The center Buchanan promised would train a line of new thinkers in how to argue against those seeking to impose an increasing role of government in economic and social life. He could win this war, and he would do it with ideas. While it's hard for most of us today to imagine how Buchanan or Dardner or any other reasonable, rational human being saw the racially segregated Virginia of the 1950s as a society built on the rights of the individual, in quotes, no matter how that term was defined, it is not hard to see why the Brown decision created a sense of grave risk among those who did believe that. Buchanan fully understood the scale of the challenge he was undertaking and promised no immediate results, but he made clear that he would devote himself passionately to this cause. Some may argue that while Darden fulfilled his part, he found the money to establish the center. He never got much in return. Buchanan's team had no discernible success in decreasing the federal government's pressure on the South all the way through the 60s and 70s. But take a longer view. Follow the story forward to the second decade of the 21st century. And a different picture emerges, one that is both a testament to Buchanan's intellectual powers and at the same time the utterly chilling story of the ideological origins of the single most powerful and least understood threat to democracy today, the attempt by the billionaire-backed radical right to undo democratic governance. For what becomes clear as the story moves forward decade by decade is that a quest that began as a quiet attempt to prevent the state of Virginia from having to meet national democratic standards for fair treatment and equal protection under the law would, some 60 years later, become the veritable opposite of itself, a stealth bid to reverse engineer all of America. Democracy and Change. Welcome back, Tom Harvin here with you on the line. With us is uh, our buddy Jefferson Smith. He is the talk show host over on X-Ray FM here in Portland, the progressive radio station 91.1 FM in the city of Portland. And uh, also the co-owner of the station, he helped start it. x is the website, and you can tweet him at Jefferson D. Smith. Jefferson, great to have you with us. And, and when you're not filling in for me, you were a member of the legislature of this state. You were, you were a member of the House of Representatives in the state of Oregon for some time. And so you're in a position to really understand how vote-by-mail came about in Oregon, how well it's working, what the general sense is about it. Tell us about vote by mail in Oregon, particularly for people who may not be Oregon residents who who are listening to sure. where I shared this thing from FreedomWorks that I got that says Nancy Pelosi and the radical left are hell bent on stealing the 2020 election. This isn't just the Democrats liberal extremists like Michelle Obama, Rita Wilson and Tom Hanks support this too. The entire DNC and establishment knows if they can get vote by mail passed, it'll lead to massive voter fraud and help them win in November. So what do you think?
10: Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for keeping doing your show every day, keeping some degree of democracy rhythm in our lives. Uh, just really appreciate it, Tom. It's great to hear your voice. And yeah, it did serve in the legislature, and prior to that, maybe even more aptly worked as a democracy activist. Right, we built the bus project and works to engage young people in democracy and vote by mail played a pretty big role. A little bit about the origin. Yeah, this was there are a lot of people. Any success as a thousand mothers. But this is something that started because one human being who I think, I can't remember if she was a postal worker, I think she worked actually in the clerk's office, the elections office. She said, you know what? We could save a bunch of money. We could save like $3 million if we instituted vote by mail. And you know, there's always budget problems in the state. So what if we did that? She pitched it to a legislator, and the legislator put it in. The Secretary of State at the time, Phil Kiesling, likes the idea. Senator Mark Hatfield, Republican from Oregon, likes the idea. League Women voters liked the idea. League Conservation voters liked the idea. A bunch of people piled on, and eventually, in phases, it happened. In fact, my first vote—the first vote I cast as a person—was person, the last election in Oregon that was in polling places, and just before we moved to all vote by mail. And this is something. And let me just take a crack at what you were saying. I was listening to the show at that point, and yet now, only anti-democracy advocates would be against vote by mail. Now, vote by mail I don't think is enough. You also have voting centers. You also want to make sure you have automatic vote registration. Those are the things to do. But there has not been any data to demonstrate that vote by mail it, it gains advantages where I was looking for one party over another. In fact, in Oregon, now district drawing, that matters a lot. You can do a lot of rigging of legislative districts by rigging legislative districts. But just by giving more people to vote, no, it ha- that has not been demonstrated to have a partisan advantage or disadvantage one way or another. In fact, right now, you got like 80 plus percent support in Oregon, including 76 percent of Republicans supporting vote by mail in Oregon. This is something that people like when they do it. They like it. The, the elected officials, Republicans, and Democrats, they also tend to like it. It is really only the anti-democracy activist
2: who doesn't like it. All right. Yeah, well, FreedomWorks was originally funded by the Kochs. So. Uh, or at least a good chunk of it, so that shouldn't surprise us, I suppose. No, I, and, and we saw, and you've talked about Nancy McLean's book, uh, Democracy in Chains, right? We know
10: yeah. what's going on in the country. But what I, what I want to do is give three ways, not because Oregon's so special, but because we've been lucky, three ways that I think that the country should learn from Oregon at this time in history. And we already did that first one. I really think this is a time for historic change on vote-by-mail, and I hope a lot of listeners are pushing their legislators and pushing their mayors and governors to institute something like it. And they are? I think there are more folks who are pushing around the country, but I wanted to give another fact. Uh, That other fact is something really interesting that Oregon gives a window to and I don't say this just as a homer But because I think this is what would have happened had we had a legitimate federal government Jefferson Jefferson your voice
2: just got really muffled I don't know if you put your thumb over the microphone or what but Justin can you hear me? There you go. Yeah all right, sorry about that the um, right now I do you
10: know that Oregon is 46th in the country? with Alaska, Hawaii, and Montana. Did
2: you know that? Jefferson, your phone just croaked. It got weirder and weirder, and then it just croaked. So, uh, you know, I'm, uh, you there? I, I am here, but if you can't hear me, it doesn't help if I'm here. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you. We have about a minute. So what's up?
10: All right. Well, I'll just say one little fact is Oregon right now is 46 cases of COVID-19 per 100,000 people. We're not the most, we're, we're down there with Alaska and Montana and Hawaii. And I think what you can look at is Oregon is what other states would be like. And we're shut down too. But what other states would be like if we had acted a little more like Australia, a little more like New Zealand, a little bit like South Korea we had the advantage of Oregon excuse me of California and Washington moving quickly we learned from them and right now we've only got like 50 plus cases per 100,000 and it's another example of how uh, it's another example of how I think we can learn from different states in this time i wanted to give a plug on wednesday evening you and i are going to do a, a digital phone call hopefully it'll work better than the technology of the phone i work tonight and if anybody wants to email us at morning at x-ray.fm uh, we would love to have any time listener uh join in to our uh, our little digital meeting but otherwise i'll stop showing up your airtime with a bad phone
2: no that's fine morning m-o-r-n-i-n-g at x-ray x-r-a-y.f-m. yes sir That's the email address. Okay, great. And, uh, you know, Jefferson and I are going to be doing that. And and X-Ray FM is one of the great resources here in this town for progressive uh, programming and some great music programming as well. X-Ray.FM is the website. Uh, Jefferson's Twitter handle is Jefferson D. Smith. Jefferson, thanks so much for dropping by. Tom, thanks for having me. I'll have a better phone next time. There you go. Okay, thank you.